and welcome to Technicast, a podcasting community open to all arts and humanities researchers. My name's Polly Hember, and together with Julian Clinn, every month we invite different guests to speak with us about their research. This month, we're continuing to explore the theme of technology, and last time, Kim Clark spoke to us about the smart city and shared an exciting extract from her novella, The Walkers. So from the smart city, data and surveillance capitalism, today we're looking at robots, humans and the potential for love between the two. We are delighted to welcome Rachel Hopkin to the Technicast, a PhD researcher at Royal Holloway. Placed within the context of NASA's Mars Exploration Programme, Rachel's essay examines the very human instinct to anthropomorphise technology. She takes us through a brilliant close reading of the film Silent Running, looking at how the narrative framing of robots on screen actually encourages this instinct, and also how it fosters a cyclical and complex conversation between science fiction, science reality, and the society which both produces and absorbs them. I'll be back at the end to speak to Rachel about how this fits into her broader research topic and also about the screenplay that she's currently writing. But for now, I'm delighted to introduce Rachel's episodes, Huey, Dewey, Louie and Oppie, Making Friends Through Narrative Framing. On the morning of the 13th of February 2019, I awoke to the news that Opportunity the little Mars rover who could, had died. Although surviving alone on a distant planet for 5,475 days on a mission that was only expected to last for 90 was nothing short of a triumph, when I read that Opportunity's last words were My battery is low and it's getting dark. I found myself moved to tears. I wondered if perhaps I was being an overly sentimental soul, but just a brief scout of my various social media accounts revealed that I was not the only warm-blooded person who appeared to be deeply saddened by both Opportunity's passing and seemingly unintentional poetry. However, it wasn't until almost two years later that I came to discover that Oppie, as the rover was affectionately nicknamed by NASA scientists, had a ghostwriter. Although Opportunity had transmitted images conveying the poor light conditions and data regarding the state of her batteries, this information was relayed back across the solar system via the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and recorded by scientists from the Mars Exploration Rover mission. Two of these scientists, Deputy Project Scientist Abigail Freeman and Project Manager John Callas reportedly then shared their interpretation of this information with Jacob Margolis, science reporter for KPCC, a non-commercial educational radio station owned by Pasadena City College, California. In a Twitter thread detailing the news regarding Opportunity, Margolis paraphrased the information he had been given by saying the last message they received was basically, My battery is low and it's getting dark. This, the third tweet in the thread of 11, was liked over 14,000 times, but the viral impact of Margolis's choice of words went far beyond the tweet itself. Almost immediately, Margolis's wording became a de facto epitaph for opportunity. Removed from its original context, it was quoted and shared by users who hadn't even encountered his thread. It served as an inspiration for countless memes, as well as artists and illustrators, whose work and merchandise was then picked up by various online communities with whom the tragic yet universal memento mori resonated. Margolis went on to write an article for LAist about what happened. He claimed that the mummification of his words contributed to the widespread misunderstanding that they were in fact Opportunity's last message home, commenting that NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab had contacted him to let him know that they were being inundated with questions about the final message. However, Margolis's thread and subsequent article themselves provide further clues as to how, 
or indeed why, this misunderstanding may have occurred. In the piece, Margolis recounts how, as a child, his father had shown him images of the Martian landscape snapped by the plucky robot, these totems of exploration and enterprise cementing the mission as one of the future science reporter's favourite science memories. Aside from the intentions of the mission being a formative influence, the formation of opportunity as a fond character of sorts is also evidence when Margolis says, The rover's been around since I was a kid. End quote. The omnipresence Margolis affords opportunity lends the robot the air of a TV grandparent, like David Attenborough or Mr. Rogers. It was likely this historical emotional proximity to opportunity which left Margolis admittedly feeling sad when he heard that the mission was coming to an end. But for him, it was not just a mission, but rather a matter of life and death for the robot. Later in the piece, while recounting the severe meteorological conditions that preceded Opportunity's last contact, Margolis uses the phrase, Oppie's life was in danger, end quote. It is not unusual for us to talk about batteries in terms of life, but in the original Twitter thread, Margolis goes so far as to talk about Opportunity's little robot heart, end quote. All this goes beyond the projection of a character extending to the affordance of mortality, to a life which had existed in parallel to Margolis's own, and was about to be extinguished. Memories certainly have something to do with it. One of my earliest finds me sitting cross-legged, inches from a screen, the static on my nose pulling me closer still. The room was filled with the bright afternoon light of a Sunday in spring, the kind too good to be wasted in front of the television, but wasted that way nonetheless, for I was already on the other side of the solar system, aboard the Valley Forge. This was sometime in the late 1980s, and I was watching the critically acclaimed and ultimately cult classic eco-sci-fi film Silent Running, directed by Douglas Trumbull and released in 1972. The film centres on an American Airlines-employed ecologist who goes rogue aboard a space freighter in order to protect his interplanetary arboretum from the nuclear destruction ordered by unfeeling corporate giants. The film's central message is one of environmental activism, reinforced by the accompaniment of a soundtrack featuring folk protest singer Joan Baez and the casting of then-aviation giant American Airlines as a corporate behemoth, a detail reminiscent of the now-defunct Pan Am branding featured on the space shuttle in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. However, a penchant for eco-activism was not what I took away from this particular experience. What I took was a lifelong propensity to anthropomorphise and an affectionate fondness for robots, thanks to the characterization of Silent Running's trio of Mechanical Man Fridays. The film opens with a montage of colourful dew-covered flowers and a slow tracking shot over insects and wildlife before coming into focus on Freeman Lowell, played by actor Bruce Dern, who is seen swimming, seemingly naked, in a forest pool. Moments later, he seemingly transitions from this biblical Adam-like figure to instead resemble St Francis of Assisi when, Dressed in robes which give him a monastic aesthetic, he sits gently feeding a small rabbit, before the shot pulls out to reveal that this is not a terrestrial forest after all, but rather a biodome attached to a spaceship floating through space, a celestial Eden. It can be no coincidence that the protagonist shares the Christian name of distinguished theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson, whose concept of the Freeman tree, a hypothetical, genetically engineered plant growing inside a comet, is evoked by the biodomes of the Valley Forge. The triptych of man, nature and technology encapsulated by the ship not only conjures the dual biblical and romantic themes of the pastoral idyll in response to industrialisation and the latter's corruption of humanity, 
but also calls to mind the words of Freeman Dyson's son, science historian George Dyson, from his work Darwin Amongst the Machines, in which he says, In the game of life and evolution, there are three players at the table, human beings, nature, and machines. End quote. While a human tends to the natural cargo of the Valley Forge, it is machines that quietly maintain the ship itself, in the form of three small non-social service robots. Although by the start of the film, the crew have supposedly spent eight years in their company, these non-human but bipedal robots, with their charming little waddles, are still simply referred to as Drone 1, Drone 2 and Drone 3. This may initially appear as somewhat surprising, given that we humans have a tendency to anthropomorphise the non-human, something which David Levy, an expert on love and sex with robots, likely attributes to the theory of the mind, a concept from the field of developmental psychology which he summarises as the ability to impute a mental state to others, end quote. This trait, which science writer and AI engineer George Sarkadakis notes as instinctive when he says that the anthropomorphizing process appears to have remained unaltered since the dawn of the modern mind, end quote, extends to the machines in our lives, as backed up by the notable early work of Sherry Turkle in her book The Second Self, Computers and the Human Spirit, first published in 1984. However, the general lack of affection shown to the robots by the crew serves to emphasise the difference in character between Lowell and his crewmates. It is swiftly and explicitly shown that Lowell's colleagues do not share his apparently nurturing nature. One of the first times we see the robots interact with the crew is when Drone 3 sidles out of the way of Keenan, Barker and Wolfe in the corridor of the living quarters after the men have raced roughshod through the arboretum on buggies, giving the little robot the air of an underdog avoiding boisterous jocks in the halls of an American high school. This occurs shortly after the three men are seen recklessly throwing fruit in the cargo bay, which land messily beside Drone 1, drawing the attention of the robot and the audience to their display of base, apish behaviour. Though it remains unclear whether the drone is an intended target of the organic missile, the sarcastic shout of good catch from one of the men certainly lends the scene an atmosphere of bullying and disrespect on the part of the three crewmen towards their robot counterparts, further casting Lowell as the good guy, perhaps in anticipation of the more than morally ambiguous behaviour that's about to unfold. Soon after, the Valley Forge receives the news that their conservation mission is to be abandoned in favour of returning the freighters to commercial service, a plan which requires the ejection and nuclear detonation of the biodomes. Although the new orders are met with delight by his crewmates, who are keen to return to Earth, defoliated or not, a distraught Lowell concludes that the only way to protect his forest is to kill his colleagues. Drone 1 quietly observes Lowell toiling in the remaining biodome when Keenan arrives to deliver the nuclear payload necessary for its destruction. A fight ensues, and the two men wrestle in the dirt, each remaining dedicated to one of the opposing instructions given by their corporate master, in Lowell's case, to continue with the original mission to conserve the trees. The struggle ends when Lowell breaks Keenan's neck with a shovel, the dynamic calling to mind yet more Old Testament imagery, in this case, Cain killing Abel. The robot once again bears silent witness to Lowell's human nature in a dark mirroring of the start of the scene. Though the ultimate victor, Lowell makes it as far as the crew's quarters before collapsing as a result of the injuries he sustained during his fight with Keenan. Lowell calls out Drone 1, who comes to his aid, extending a mechanical arm in what could be taken as a gesture of comfort in the absence of any explicit probing intention. Shortly afterwards, 
Lowell recovers enough to reprogram all three of the drones so that they're able to perform surgery on his injured leg, marking the beginning of a bonding between the man and his fleet of robots. This introduces the suggestion of mutual care, something Turkle refers to as the fantasy of reciprocation, which is emphasised later in the film when Lowell performs surgery on the injured drone 2, and this time extends his arm to drone 1. Relating the perception and interpretation of the human-robot interactions between Lowell and the drones to fantasy is significant at this point, since these are hitherto unnamed maintenance drones, and are not even humanoid in appearance or nature. Therefore, we can assume that there would be no need for them to possess any emotional programming at all. However, these perceptions tell us more about Lowell's own programming to anthropomorphise, and indeed our own. While programming the drones with medical knowledge, Lowell instructs them to respond directly to him when he says, you guys are working for me now. Of course, there isn't anyone else aboard the Valley Forge to respond to by this point, which indicates Lowell's tendency to indulge in self-centering behaviour. Soon after, he begins to talk to the robots as if they are children, reprimanding and admonishing them at regular intervals for what he considers to be their shortcomings. This authoritative behaviour starts to occur after Drone 3, while inexplicably operating on the surface of the ship during rough passage near Saturn's outer rings, becomes stuck and is unable to obey Lowell's command to follow Drones 1 and 2 to safety, after which he is struck from the hull by space debris and is lost to the depths of space. Why didn't you follow them? Lowell laments. Once they're back inside the ship, Lowell proceeds to name the two surviving drones, and even the third departed robot, indicating that the aforementioned bond has deepened in the aftermath of loss. His connection to the robots is now emotional. He names them after the Disney characters Huey, Dewey and Louie. The surviving pair could easily have been named after a twosome. I am put in mind of the scene in Dennis Villeneuve's arrival when the pair of visiting aliens are named Abbott and Costello by their human counterparts. But Lowell's decision to name the surviving two, and retrospectively name Drone 3, serves as a constant reminder that a member of the team is missing, perpetuating a feeling of grief, an emotion which Lowell is haunted by, or perhaps even indulges in, throughout the film, whether via the obsessive longing for a foliated earth, or perverse nostalgia for time spent with the crewmates he ultimately murdered. Although the year in which the action is set is unspecified, Disney's Duckling Triplets first appeared in 1937, making the choice of names retro even by the time the film was made. The heavy weight of nostalgia implied by this choice, coupled with the fact that they belong to cartoon characters, indicates a longing for childhood, which is reinforced by Lowell's inclination for using a child's watering can, sewing what appear to be scout activity badges onto his uniform, and his absent-mindedly singing Smokey the Bear, the song of the US Forest Service's wildlife prevention campaign mascot. However, this last Boy Scout in space image is at odds with the monastic figure we were presented with earlier in the film, signposting a regression in Lowell's character and state of mind. His wistfully touching the rather basic conservation pledge certificate, which he has stuck on the wall beside his bed, reads more tragic than heroic, and indicates a creeping immaturity which arguably may always have been present in Lowell, just as it clearly was in his crewmates. A brief silent flashback reminds us of an earlier scene where he squabbles with them about the supremacy of crops versus synthetic food. Lowell speaks to Huey and Dewey as if they are children, but not his children. Rather, they are cast as synthesised peers, allowing for the resurrection of a childhood dynamic, further entrenching the sense of Lowell's emotional regression. Following the first programming session, when he teaches the robots all he knows about tending the forest so that they can assist in his work, he reprograms them a second time, teaching them how to play cards, 
so that they may also indulge in play with him in a bid to stave off his growing sense of loneliness, but also guilt, as indicated by a series of invasive flashbacks. Although the robots taped the game well, they once again draw Lowell's ire when he concludes that they are talking to each other, thereby leaving him out. Though not a command they've been programmed with, Lowell verbally dictates a new house rule, stipulating that the robots aren't allowed to talk amongst themselves. However, the robots do not talk. They don't even make noise. The ubiquitous bleeps and bloops we've come to expect from fictional robots are conspicuous by their absence. The extent of what Lowell perceives as talking is a quiet electronic whir accompanied by the waving of a little flap on the right of their fascia, which gives the appearance of a mouth, suggesting that he is merely projecting human behaviours onto his robotic companions. This is not the first instance of Lowell opting to interpret their behaviour. In an earlier scene, when Lowell, Huey and Dewey are inspecting the outside of the ship, the robots stop when they find one of Louis's dismembered legs attached to the hull. Other than standing still and looking at the robotic limb, the robots make no sound and make very little further movement, but this does not prevent Lowell from remarking, I know you're sad about Louis. This scene has strong similarities to one depicted by Turkle in her 2006 diary article in the London Review of Books entitled Tamagotchi Love, which describes a forlorn elderly patient at a Boston nursing home interacting with Paro, a non-humanoid therapeutic robot which resembles a baby seal. Turkle says, In this session with Paro, the woman, depressed because of her son's abandonment, comes to believe that the robot is depressed as well. She turns to Paro, strokes him and says, Yes, you're sad, aren't you? It's tough out there. Yes, it's hard. And then she pets the robot once again, attempting to provide it with comfort. And in doing so, she tries to comfort herself. End quote. However, Lowell also uses his potentially heartfelt moment with Huey and Dewey as yet another opportunity to reprimand the remaining drones when he says, But he got careless. See what happens when you get careless? If we are to follow Turkle's line of thought, we can ourselves interpret this as Lowell reprimanding, or perhaps even warning himself. Following the card game, which ends with Lowell's laughter ringing throughout the ship in response to the robots literally beating him at his own game, Huey and Dewey, in a break with both their programming to respond only to Lowell, and the house rule not to talk amongst themselves, meet in private on the hull of the ship. In an echo of Lowell's paranoid interpretation, they do appear to converse silently, and almost conspiratorially, reminiscent of the scene in 2001 A Space Odyssey, in which the human astronauts Bowman and Poole retreat to an EVA pod to avoid Hal's eavesdropping, only for the AI to read their lips and discover their plan. However, unlike Hal, we cannot read these robots' lips, and just like Lowell, we are left in the dark as to the content or nature of their discussion, whether benevolent or malign. Ultimately, the pair appear benignly in the crew's quarters just as Lowell is preparing to eat a meal of synthetic food, which he has previously despised, thereby pricking his conscience. Their appearance alone serves as an intervention for Lowell, and is also interpreted as such by the audience, having been party to the occurrence, if not the contents, of Huey and Dewey's rendezvous. In this instance, we are forced to participate in Lowell's projecting behaviours, thereby aligning ourselves with him, the human, and not the robots, even if they are more likeable than Lowell. Therefore, the progressive distillation of anthropomorphism in silent running, via both naming and framing, is somewhat self-referential, in that Lowell's projections run in parallel with our own, as summed up by the work of Darling et al. in their 2015 paper, Empathic Concern and the Effect of Stories in Human-Robot Interactions. 
which found that applying narrative framing to a robot may positively influence a person's empathic response towards it. After the intervention, Lowell proceeds to the forest to find some real food to discover that the arboretum, which he is increasingly neglected along with his diet, is dying. Lowell resolves to discover the cause, but what follows is a montage of pseudo-scientific investigation, which reads more like a child playing with a toy lab set rather than achieving any meaningful goal, and he is once again tortured by nostalgic yet haunting visions of the sunlit forests of Earth. At a loss, Lowell sends Huey to the forest to take a soil sample, but when attempting to venture to join the drone in the dome, he accidentally hits it with a buggy, damaging the robot. It is at this point that we see Lowell attempt to repair Huey, though he chooses to do so in the medical bay and with surgical equipment rather than tools. This unusual choice once again suggesting that Lowell is only playing at fixing the robot, much like a child treating one of his toys with his play school doctor's kit. Unable to fix either the forest or the damaged Huey, Lowell descends even further into his malaise, allowing himself to become surrounded by detritus and taking to his bed, seemingly giving up, much like he accused his fellow humans of doing. After an unspecified length of time, and now in deep space, Lowell is eventually roused from his stupor by an unexpected communique informing him that he is to be rescued. Once again, he is reminded that he will need to jettison the biodome, but that due to the intense darkness of their location, he should refrain from detonating the charges as originally instructed. This instruction seemingly jogs his memory that his flight into deep space has taken him further from the sun and is the reason for the forest's decline. As an ecologist, photosynthesis is arguably rather basic botanical knowledge that we could feasibly expect him to possess, but this sense that Lowell is merely masquerading at possessing knowledge, whether as monastic sage, scientist or even surgeon, links once again to the concept of fantasy and projection which is potentially at the heart of human-robot interactions, perhaps even making a premonition of his earlier warning. See what happens when you get careless? After hurriedly erecting a number of sun lamps in the biodome, Lowell explains that he is passing the mantle of maintaining the soon-to-be-jettisoned forest to Dewey. Lowell weeps, I just can't do it anymore. Things just haven't worked out for me. Whether it is because his crimes are about to be discovered, or because he realises that he has become obsolete, his tasks better handled by his robot counterpart, reflecting a commonplace human fear about automated labour, Lowell retreats to the crew's quarters, taking the damaged Huey with him. Once he has safely jettisoned the biodome and Dewey, Lowell begins preparing the charges to blow up the Valley Forge with himself and Huey aboard. As he does so, he recounts a story from his childhood. You know, when I was a kid, I put a note into a bottle and it had my name and address on it. And then I threw the bottle into the ocean. And I never knew if anybody ever found it. Although this is a somewhat blunt allegory for the remaining dome floating through deep space, Lowell's noble speech apparently divesting himself of the self-centering ego of humanity is not entirely sincere. Throughout the film, he is seemingly played at being a figure of either innocence, morality, or superior knowledge, all very human ideals, which as a species, we arguably fail at or fall foul of in their pursuit. Similarly, the theme of haunting melancholy induced by nostalgia equally hints at a sense of self-importance, which is at odds with the tone and content of Lowell's auto-eulogising. Indeed, immediately prior to his departure from the biodome, having wept for his own misfortune, he informs Huey that he must accompany Lowell back aboard the Valley Forge, as he is too badly damaged to remain in the forest with Dewey. This seems an unnecessary deduction of requirements, given that Huey's presence in the dome, damaged or otherwise, would be of no negative consequence to Dewey or the forest. However, where Huey's presence is of consequence is with Lowell, for Lowell once more requires a witness to his own humanity, even at the end of it.
As Lowell sits and waits for death, he looks up at Huey, who appears to look back at him before he places a hand on the robot's casing. While this image could easily be taken as a moving final moment between brothers in arms, comrades mutually accepting their fate, this is not the case. We do not see through Huey's eyes as we have done at other points throughout the film, nor does he extend an arm to Lowell. Lowell may intend to die, but he does not want to do so alone, and thus, even in his final moments, he persists in constructing a fantasy of reciprocity. While the deep electronic throbbing of Peter Shikelli's score conveys the ticking down of the detonator and time running out for Lowell, he turns his gaze to the window, to the stars, and to the camera, to us. Once again, we are made party to his fantasy, because as humans, with what Zarkadakis calls our storytelling brain, end quote, it is also our fantasy. After the Valley Forge explodes in a burst of light and glittering space junk, then disappears into darkness, a gentle fade and twinkling folk music takes us to the final floating forest, where Dewey tends to the flora with Lowell's childish watering can, decorated with images of children running wild as simultaneously sung about by Joan Baez. This final setting perfectly bookends the opening scenes, this time casting Dewey as a robotic Adam, but also mirroring George Dyson's conclusion that, in the game of life and evolution, there are three players at the table, human beings, nature and machines. I am firmly on the side of nature, but nature, I suspect, is firmly on the side of machines. End quote. Despite the somewhat post-humanist note on which the film ends, our species' propensity to indulge in the collective fantasy of anthropomorphism is not a purely negative one. Although it does lean towards our selfish requirement to centre ourselves, the human, it also speaks to the human need to connect, whether to the human, non-human, or even almost human. Though too young to have been aware of it at the time, the theatrical trailer for Silent Running invites us to meet the almost human drones, amazing companions on a journey beyond the stars. However, as almost silent, non-humanoid, initially unnamed maintenance drones, they are arguably some way off being even almost human. However, through instinctive anthropomorphism, the affection Huey, Dewey, and of course Louie, may he rust in peace, elicit from both Silent Running's human protagonist and its audience, effectively renders them close enough to be worthy of the description. The drones of the Valley Forge are considered amongst the first filmic examples of the lovable robot, arguably paving the way for fan favourites R2-D2 and C-3PO, who ultimately brought the trope to the mainstream with Star Wars in 1977. My reference to a generalised concept of the mainstream here is intentional, though I could refer to the subsequent prevalence of the lovable robot archetype in mainstream Western cinema alone, given that it's been central to the output of this century's corporate cultural colossus Disney across its many properties such as Pixar's Wall-E, Star Wars franchise's BB-8, and Marvel's Big Hero 6. It was arguable that it's exactly when robots are viewed through the lens of narrative cinema, an inherently visual storytelling medium, that the opportunity to experience a more visceral, positive emotional response and connection to robots in a wider sense becomes available than may previously have been afforded by literary representations alone. Indeed, in their 2011 study, Exposure to Cinematic Depictions of Robots and Attitudes Towards Them, Rieketal found that the greater exposure of an audience to robots on film positively correlated with more favourable attitudes towards robots in general. In his book, Wired for War, P.W. Singer, while reflecting on science fiction's impact on science reality, cites director James Cameron's acknowledgement of what Singer calls the feedback loop. Cameron says, 
There's definitely a feedback between the sciences and science fiction. It flows in both directions. Science fiction inspires people to become scientists and want to ask questions about the nature of existence and matter and reality. End quote. Rebecca Gibson, in her recent book Desire and the Age of Robots and AI, also notes the existence of what she terms a recursive system, in which robotics and science fiction endlessly inspire each other, a system in which anthropomorphism inevitably plays a part. In her chapter Who's Johnny? Anthropomorphic Framing in Human-Robot Interaction, Integration and Policy, Kate Darling notes the need for caution when humans ultimately come to anthropomorphise non-social robots. Citing examples listed by Singer, she claims it can be anything from inefficient to dangerous for robots to be anthropomorphised when they are meant to be non-social tools, end quote. Though she clarifies that there are also robotic technologies whose use is facilitated by anthropomorphism, end quote. Therefore, it becomes arguable that even the harnessing of framing devices such as anthropomorphism and their application to specifically non-social robots can be beneficial when taken on a use-case basis, the use-case in question being the Mars rover mission and its ongoing conversation with society at large. On the 18th of February 2021, the world turned its eyes back upwards to the heavens and to Mars, where a new Mars rover, Perseverance, was due to land on the Red Planet. A whole new generation was watching, wide-eyed via their televisions, but also their laptops, tablets and smartphones, tweeting messages of support to Percy, as the rover has been nicknamed, and sending heart and heart-eyes emojis to the chat alongside NASA's YouTube channel livestream of the landing, coming out of the Jet Propulsion Lab. Indeed, in the moments leading up to Perseverance's landing, JPL engineer Swati Mohan described the robot as transmitting heartbeat tones, which indicate that everything is operating normally. And Rob Manning, NASA JPL chief engineer and landing veteran, offering a further anthropomorphically loaded translation when he said, There's no more ones and zeros coming, it's just the vehicle telling us it's alive. End quote. This life imbuing language was shared by the NASA JPL commentator producer Raquel Villanueva when, following justified jubilations from Mission Control, she reported that, We just heard the news that Perseverance is alive on the surface of Mars. End quote. Interestingly, even Paul Vusen, in the peer-reviewed academic journal Science, refers to Swati Mohan as narrating the landing attempt, seemingly acknowledging and accepting the utilisation of storytelling devices rather than purely adhering to scientific jargon when describing the technical stages of interplanetary exploration for the benefit of the public. Here, via the use of both unintentional and intentional anthropomorphic framing, we see a correlation between the outpouring of public grief felt globally when Opportunity's mission came to an end, and the excitement and fervour felt far beyond the mission control room in anticipation of Perseverance's landing on the very same planet. It is almost as if we are getting a do-over, a chance to rewrite the story, and the sorrow we felt, with elation. After all, we humans love a happily ever after. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your brilliant research with us on Technicast today. I absolutely loved your analysis of silent running and the way that you traced that really clever crystallization of that bond between Lowell and the drones over the course of the film and the way that you gestured to those implications of such instinctive anthropomorphism. 
Now, I understand that your PhD research looks specifically at depictions of love between humans and robots and the debates around the ethics of such interactions. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how this piece fits into your broader research topic and how does that fantasy of projection and anthropomorphization intersect with feelings of love or intimacy between humans and robots? Thank you so much for having me on the Technicast. It's a privilege and an honour. Thank you. In answer to your first question as to how it fits into my thesis, when first sort of describing my research topic about being love uh, between humans and robots it sort of automatically brings to mind sort of uh, really salacious ideas about sex bots and things like that which of course is a very important topic which it it, it will it does intend to cover and must be covered in the field because it has such an impact on so many people's lives and and, and the fallout from it so it's not to downplay that at all and it will feature but love is so much more than eros and romance and I wanted very much to not just focus on that sort of Im Im immediate spring to of thought of uh, of sexual love even though it often is the thing that people think of first so my thesis actually aims to uh, look at love in its various forms so it could either be it can be familial, platonic, or sort of self-love and universal love, and sort of extending to transspeciesism and uh, transhumanism, for example. So it sort of it, it sort of goes beyond the realm of love alone, and certainly romantic love alone. And so I'm looking at these various forms of love to form uh, natural chapter divisions. And so where Silent Running and Lowell and his uh, robots fall in is into potentially a chapter on uh, platonic love um, on friendships and uh, particularly colleagues um, because we are living in an age of ongoing automation of labour and it's something we've already been trying to get to come to terms with you know a long time but it's only ramping up and we need to deal with it and the genie is out of the bottle it won't go back but we've got to figure out a way where it works for people. And I think that this area is, is, is where how we relate to robots in an emotive sense can be a significant part of how we get to working, how this can work for us, how our society is changing. It sounds like such important research that you're doing. And I think that sounds wonderful, the kind of explorations of all those different types of love and intimacy and the many forms that they take, because we relate to technology in just such a myriad number of complex ways as well. It sounds so necessary, this research, and just really interesting. I'd love to hear more about the ways that you're sectioning off that research. So this falls into a place in platonic intimacies and work on colleagues. I know that you're quite early on in your research, um, but have you got an inkling of what maybe the next chapter and the next section will hold? I think my next chapter is going to be looking at the romantic nature of things. So I think I'm going to be looking at sort of smart wives and manic pixie robot girls um, and dealing with gender and race fetishization, excuse me, and looking at issues of consent, which is, which is such a contentious area and falls in with your question on the fantasy of projection and anthropomorphism and how that falls in with feelings of love and intimacy. And I think it's, when, however we look at love in its various early stages, I think it's arguable that it's always linked to, to an element of fantasy because before that love is spoken and shared the emotion may already be there 
and there's usually an anchor of hope attached to it that that feeling will be mutual and reciprocated whether that's with another human or with a pet you're always projecting a, a fantasy that if, if you're lucky turns out to be true or as good as because you can't get verbal confirmation that your pet loves you too but you can feel it and that's a really important thing the feeling it is i think as long as those dreams come true are respectful and not taken to any extremes then the hope that's at the heart of love is i think fair and necessary but the real issue lies in consent and that's i think really significant to that part of the discourse and must and is being explored and creatively so for example i think it's a stage play which made a vignettes of little scenes on the subject called sex with robots i think it's cloaked from theater and i think it was written by uh, nessa nessa Muffy. so it's it's already being explored creatively and and certainly on film too for example with ex machina and blade runner 2049 so i think it is being explored i am still finding my way through that part of the debate because i think that um, discussions around consent are key and I think it's when we're talking about artificial persons it's really important that it doesn't affect how we relate to each other as humans and 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 how we relate to other living creatures but also I guess inanimate creatures too so and and then that causes all sorts of legal ramifications in terms of personhood so it sort of ends up spiraling and snowballing so sorry I am talking too much but no um, (laughs) but so it really is so it's a very contentious area and I'm still working my way through that part of it myself I'm not sure I have an answer or will have one it sounds so important that the centering of those socio and ethical ramifications of this research area and it sounds like those are really at the heart of your research project too so I'm so interested to hear more about your project and really interested to hear about that next section when you come to it And kind of thinking more about those creative responses, I understand you're also working on a screenplay that engages with these issues as well, alongside a kind of more traditional thesis. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, it's actually changed hugely really recently. So it had originally been more of a typical romance and in a a retro-futuristic MIT campus. And it has moved away from that and in dialogue with my theory research it's it has a greater reflection of the chapters themselves in terms of it's, it's sort of turned into more of a family melodrama <laughs> featuring robots and set in a retro futuristic or alternative Thatcherite Britain so it's hugely changed and I think we'll have to watch this space on on, on where we go with that but it, it's just to 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 push the the genre a little I, I mean I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm you know creating something new in that respect but I just wanted to maybe meet that challenge by playing with the genres more than uh, than perhaps I might have with a with a straight um, romance. I love that idea of those two methodologies and I can see how they'd resonate with each other and really and speak to each other as well so again I'm so excited to hear more about that screenplay as you as you continue writing it Rachel. Thinking back to when this all started, what sparked this PhD project for you and your interest in this fascinating topic? I was wondering whether it's a similar story to Margolis at this that you speak about so beautifully at the start of the episode, or whether this interest is something that you come to later on in your research. I think, as mentioned in the podcast, it was silent running. It sounds ridiculous. This is the truth. 
it's how I ended up writing on the subject was I was thinking about how this happened for me I mean I, I generally do tend to anthropomorphize an awful lot <laughs> all sorts of things to my detriment probably and to the annoyance of others but I was I don't know two or three I was watching Silent Running burst into tears <laughs> as a small child and it just stayed with me and I've heard that other people feel that way about this film and particularly that you know particularly with the robots and you know I don't really remember anything when I was a child. Didn't remember anything about Lowell. Didn't remember. Didn't remember he was so weird um, and a murderer. Um, but um, and I just remembered loving the robots and feeling so sorry for the robots. And I think that's going back and and having rewatched it and thinking like, oh, well, I didn't really think anything about the the human protagonist. And I was like, that's really significant. And I was actually the the way in which this all was really the start of the research was I was the science museum I think it was in 20 ooh, 2016 maybe 2017 2017 maybe early 2017 they had an exhibition about about robots and I can't remember what it was called but it was at the science museum and it was fascinating and I attended a talk and I can't remember who it was by now and the, the, a question was posed the audience was would you ever date a robot and Hardly anyone put their hand up. And it was very interesting, but some people did. And I, I wish I could remember who it was that gave the talk, but the person that gave the talk illustrated their talk with clips from television and film as best to illustrate the concepts that they were trying to communicate to a lay audience, although a lay audience that were clearly interested enough to be at a talk at the Science Museum. So it just, it was, it just really had me thinking about it. And I was thinking about issues of consent and feeling and human programming and whether we're all just you know meat machines and we love each other because of our programming we love who we love because of our programming so does it really matter if you're an artificial person or not and if love can be programmed and if there is a sense of reward in in that is is that so bad Mm. if that if that's you know I, I just the jury's out for me I'm still that's what this is all about but that's that's how I came to this it sounds strange um it sounds very strange recounting it back as well but um so interesting that's that story (laughs) I love that story of um as you're a younger child watching silent running for the first time and that talk sounds fascinating as well and I have to admit I've not seen the film myself after listening to your your talk I googled I immediately googled the the drones and I felt that similar I felt quite emotional after listening to this trajectory this narrative um, that the the three of them go on and yeah just immediately began to feel that instinctive anthropomorphization as well happen within me having not even watched the film so I I just I find it so incredibly interesting and again I just think these are really important questions to be asking and I look forward to hearing more about your research as it progresses. Thanks again for coming on to the Technicast. It's been a pleasure getting to speak to you a little bit more about your research and about your broader research topics and that screenplay as well. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Technicast. We'd love to hear what you thought. You can find us on Twitter at Technicast and you can follow Rachel on there at Rakishi. You can also rate, review and share this podcast so more people can listen to these PhD researchers' incredible work. If you would like to be featured on the Technicast, please email us at technicaster at gmail.com 
and you can also look out for our themed call for papers in the Techme newsletter and on Twitter. We'll see you back here next time where we'll be exploring the theme of materials, but until then, can we just say a huge thanks again to Rachel for sharing her current work with us and to Techme for their ongoing support. Thanks very much for listening. Take care.